0: As we said, we'll be in the book of Haggai tonight. Haggai, let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we are so thankful again for Your Word. We're thankful for this series that we've been going through. Uh, if it's probably for most of us, some of these books we we knew were in the Bible and we've probably read before, but probably have not in the past been able to tell you what they're about and so we're so grateful that you've given us some time this summer to slow down and to think through these very important books your very words to us we pray that you would do the same thing in this book of Haggai we pray that as your word is taught that we would hear not primarily from the preacher but from you our God and King we pray that you would speak to us through your word that you would change us even as we listen. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, there's a megachurch in town and their slogan is God first, God first. And in my less mature years, uh, I scoffed at that bumper sticker. You've probably seen them in town. It's a GF with a circle around it. I used to, to scoff at that bumper sticker in my less mature years because I would say well God doesn't belong on a list of priorities he is the list he is the list and honestly I would say that in retrospect I was really just I was really just nitpicking if I'm being honest God first is a doctrine and a practice that we should absolutely embrace but we do need to nuance it a bit more because it's true It's true what I'm saying is that God does not belong as an item on a list of priorities, like this one that you may have heard before. God, family, and football. You ever heard that before? God, family, and football. Or another one that's that's more egregious from A Few Good Men, where the Marine says, unit, core, God, country. So in that first one, at least, God is listed first but in the second one, God falls third behind one's unit in the Marine Corps. So we shouldn't think of God first in that way, that God is an item to be put on a list of priorities. But there is another sense in which we absolutely should embrace a God first mentality, and it's in this way, it's in this way. God first in everything. God first in everything in every area of our lives God should be first in our family lives God should be first even in watching or playing football or serving in the Marine Corps God should be first so we don't we don't compartmentalize our lives in such a way where we say well this over here is the Christian part of my life and that comes first but then everything else comes second Over here is the the non-Christian part of my life. That comes second. So the Christian part comes first and everything else comes second. We should not do that. Everything in our lives is Christian. We never stop being Christian. We never stop being followers of Christ. So every part of our lives is Christian. And so every part of our life should be God first. And by the way, if if there's something in your life that you can't include God in, in good conscience, conscience, then that's sinful, or and or it's idolatrous, and you need to cut that out of your life anyway. God can be first, and he can be center in even the most mundane things. You can clean your house to the glory of God. You can watch a sunset to the glory of God. You can eat a slice of apple pie to the glory of God, but you cannot be in an ungodly relationship to the glory of God. You can't get drunk to the glory of God and so on. So God's people are to be a God-first people and frankly, there really is no what better way to be. There's no better way to be than being a God-first people If we do all things to the glory of God, not only is that glorifying to him, but it's also beneficial to us, and it's also sweet to us, satisfying to us. In our new natures, we are actually wired to glorify God in all things and actually to want to do so. So, it pleases us when we get to glorify God in everything. This brings us to Haggai. In the book of Haggai, we see a people who have gotten to the point in life where they were no longer God first. And we see in this book God compassionately chastening them for their good. And we see Him blessing their return to covenant faithfulness. And in this book, we too are chastened by our compassionate God. We too have an opportunity to be blessed by growing in our faithfulness to our covenant lord so as we study Haggai we're going to be encouraged to do three things if you're taking notes three things listen to God's chastening reprioritize and hold on to God's promises let's take a look at each of those in turn first we're encouraged to listen to God's chastening listen to God's chastening there's three points where we're going to be spending about half of our sermon just on this first point all right, so let's have our attention, John, first of all, in Haggai to the words that you find in the middle of chapter 1, verse 1, and also in chapter 1, verse 3, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. The setting for our book is August, 520 BC. It is, as verse 1 says, the second year of Darius the king. 18 years before this book, the Persian King Cyrus had come in and overthrown Babylon and he issued a decree which allowed those who were taken to Babylon to go back to their homeland, in the case of God's people, to go back to Judea. After King Cyrus died, his son ruled for some time but then he also died, possibly by assassination. And then in 522 BC, a military leader named Darius rose to power. And so our setting is the second year of Darius the king, 520 B.C., 520 B.C. It's on this year, on the sixth month, which is equivalent to August on our calendar, even though for us it's the eighth month, but in their calendar it would have been August. It's on this month of that year that the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And even though the recipients of this prophecy, as you can see in verse 1, were Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, we're reminded by these words, the word of the Lord, that what we're covering tonight is not primarily Ed's sermon, nor Haggai's prophecies, but the very word of God for you, his people. So when we read a passage, and for some of you, you might think it's cheesy that we say, this is the word of the Lord, and you respond, thanks be to God, we mean it when we say it. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's word for you, his people. And then we read it beginning in verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, thus says the Lord of hosts, do those words not cause you to tremble before God in reverence? They should. When it says that he is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, what that is saying is that he commands a great army. And he does. Not only do all angels bow before him, and angels are powerful in in their own right, all of the angels who have not fallen bow before him, and even the fallen angels submit to him and do his bidding. All creation does so, not just the angels. God rules over all. He is Yahweh of hosts. And thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 2, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is referring to the temple. Well, what happened? What happened to the temple? Why did it need to be rebuilt? So remember, this book is 520 B.C. In 587 B.C., and remember in B.C. we're going up to go back, in 587 B.C., in response to the Judahites revolting against Babylonian rule, the Babylonians came in, they besieged Jerusalem, they burned down the city, and they destroyed the temple. And while that was a wicked act that the Babylonians did, it was also a fulfillment of God's covenant curse on Israel. God says to Solomon in 1 Kings 9 6 through 8 1st Kings 9 6 through 8 but if you turn aside from me or from following me you or your children and do not keep my commandments and my statues that I have set before you but go and serve other gods and worship them then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins. This house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Sure enough, God's people turned away from him, and he bore long with their unfaithfulness but then he allowed the temple to be destroyed. Now, what is the big deal about that? Why is it such a big deal that the temple was destroyed? It's just a building. But the temple was symbolic of something far more important than that, fellowship with God. In one sense, God does not live in temples made by man, as Acts 17, 24 says. God doesn't live in the temple per se. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But in another sense, God chose to dwell in the house that Solomon built for him. It was a place where where God's people would, would gather to worship him, would gather to have fellowship with him. And so when the temple was destroyed, that was basically saying, our fellowship is broken. So you see why it's a big deal then, that God's people were dragging their feet on rebuilding this destroyed temple. Well, that said, you know we can kind of relate to why the people were dragging their feet. We can relate. Well, in 538 BC, this was 20 years before this prophecy. 538. Uh, remember that King Cyrus had proclaimed that if you were taken from your land, you can go back to your land now. And when they when they got back to their land in 538 BC. They did, indeed, set up an altar to worship God. They even laid a foundation for a new temple to be built. But then the Samaritan people who lived north of Jerusalem started to harass them and started to frustrate these rebuilding efforts. They even went to the lengths of hiring lawyers to persuade the Persian authorities to stop supporting the rebuilding of the temple. And so naturally that led to discouragement, that led to apathy. And they stopped trying for the next 16 years. They stopped trying to rebuild the temple. Can't we relate to that though? Maybe you started your Christian walk on fire, zealous, ready to make disciples, eager, eager to share the word of God with everyone in your path. But then after years of rejection, years of social pressure, years of persecution. Maybe you have become discouraged. Maybe you've become apathetic. It's wrong what God's people did in Haggai, but it's understandable. It's understandable. So the people were saying that the time had not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. In verse 4, God continues, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The issue here is not that God wanted them to be homeless. All right, God didn't want them to be homeless. He provides shelter for his people in more ways than one. The issue was not the houses. The issue was that their houses were paneled. What that probably meant was that was that their walls and their ceiling were covered with cedar wood. Expensive. This was a luxury that their houses were paneled. Meaning that the people had upgraded their houses while God's house was left in ruins. Again, is that not like us? No, we're not rebuilding a temple. Even this temple would end up being finally destroyed in AD 70 anyway. And we don't need a temple because Jesus himself is a temple and in him so are all of us. We don't worship at God's house anymore. This is not God's house. Y'all are God's house. We are God's house. And our task is to build God's house. Not this building, not First Baptist Church of the Lakes per se. It's to expand his kingdom, to make disciples of all nations but have we not all to some degree let that effort go on the back burner and instead focused on our own lives? Have we not invested much more time and energy in our career advancements, and our children's sports, and our entertainment, etc.? Once more, the issue was not the houses per se, It wasn't even the paneling, per se. It's the fact that God's house was lying in ruins. And similarly, it's not about our careers, per se. It's not about children's sports or entertainment, per se. It's that all of us, to some degree, have put the great commandments and the great commission on the back burner. We have said, the time has not yet come to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The time has not yet come to love our neighbors as ourselves. The time has not yet come to make disciples of all nations. Now, when you're preaching to a large group, you you know that your audience is gonna have a range. There are some people who are in here that are using a great amount of their time and their energy and their resources for kingdom work. And for that, we say thanks be to God. And in the other extreme, Others only pop into church from time to time. They come late, they leave early, and that is the extent of their participation in the house of God. And while those people are in need of the strongest exhortation, all of us would probably say, I can think of some things that I have placed above God. I can think of some priorities that have overtaken the priority of making disciples of all nations. I mean, who here could could say, even us full-time pastors, we made it. I've arrived. My priorities are perfectly lined up. Who here could say that? Brothers and sisters, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? God continues in verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways in other words think about what you've been experiencing lately verse 6 you have sown much and harvested little you eat but you never have enough you drink but you never have your fill you clothe yourselves but no one is warm and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes paraphrasing Haven't you noticed, O people of God, that your harvests have been somewhat lacking? Haven't you noticed that you work so, so hard in the fields and you yield so little? And implied in this, which will be explicitly said later in the passage, is that God was withholding blessing from their harvests because of their missorted priorities. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says it again, but this time what God is saying is change your ways. Change what you're doing. Verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Go get wood, not to panel your houses some more, right? But, But go get wood to rebuild the temple. And God would take pleasure in that. He would receive it as a delightful sacrifice and he would be glorified. How would he be glorified? Remember that the temple was symbolic of God's presence among his people. A destroyed temple lying in ruins was not glorifying to God. In verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1, we see a lot more clearly that there Their recent difficulties were brought on by God himself. Verses 9 through 11. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. God's people had busied themselves with their own business rather than God's business, and so God disciplined them in love. Some of the difficulty for us with suffering is that we don't always know why we're suffering. We don't always know why we're suffering. Not all of our suffering is tied to particular sin for which we're being disciplined. And I think because of that, because we can't identify I'm suffering this because of this particular sin, we don't often consider our ways when we're suffering. That seems to be the case here with Haggai's audience. They were suffering but they didn't realize it was for discipline, so they weren't considering their ways. They were experiencing a drought. They weren't getting the crops that they wanted, but they didn't tie it with the temples lying in ruins until Haggai's message. Perhaps we're experiencing a drought of sorts in our own lives for the same reason, but we're not noticing it. Perhaps it's difficulties that have come upon your own life consider your ways consider your ways is it perhaps that god is disciplining you in love because you have prioritized your business over his what about the spiritual drought that we're seeing all around us consider this the spiritual bankruptcy that our culture is experiencing consider how rapidly the morality of our nation and the world around us is deteriorating. Is God sovereign over that? Of course. Of course he is. But is it also perhaps because of our failure to preach the law and the gospel to our neighbors? Consider how many babies continue to be murdered in Nevada on a daily basis. Is that perhaps in part because Despite hearing an impassioned plea from this pulpit just weeks ago, you still haven't done anything to stand for human life. Or or perhaps like the Judahites, you started strong after that first week after that sermon and you fizzled off due to discouragement and distraction. Consider how there are still cities and nations out there that are 100% devoid of the gospel. We could say, well, God is sovereign over that. Amen, he is. But is it perhaps in part because we haven't made any effort to plant churches there? Have we become satisfied with Redeemer Community Church and the shoemakers' work in Indonesia? I'm going to have to edit that out. My bad. Is perhaps the spiritual drought that we're experiencing in part due to our busying ourselves with our own houses? We need to consider it at least we need to consider it at least but it was certainly the case for the people of God in the book of Haggai a few months later God says to them thus says the Lord of hosts this is in chapter 2 verses 11 through 12 take a look at chapter 2 verses 11 through 12 so we're fast-forwarding a few months to December thus says the Lord of hosts ask the priests about the law if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment And touches with his fold bread uh, or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food does it become holy so the question is really about whether holiness can be transferred simply by touch so if there was meat that was sacrificed to God and it was holy and it he puts it in his fold and it touches his garment and then that garment touches other food does that other food become holy and at the end of verse 12 The priests rightly answer, no, it does not. And then verse 13, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? In other words, can unholiness be transferred? And ceremonially, the answer was, chapter 2, verse 13, it does become unclean. It does become unclean. So by God's law, If you touched the corpse, you were ceremonially unclean, and you had to be cleansed before you could go to the temple. And by the way, Christ demonstrates his supremacy and authority over this ceremonial principle, and he fulfills it in a beautiful way. Jesus touches a leper in Matthew 8.3. He touches a dead girl in Matthew 9.25, and yet they do not make him unclean. On the contrary, he makes them clean, assuming that they believe in him. Jesus touched our dead souls, and he transferred his holiness to us. But before that was possible, our uncleanness was transferred to him. And he paid for our sins by dying on the cross. But now, having risen from the dead, victorious over sin, then all who believe in him are purified Thanks be to God. But back to God's questions in Haggai. These questions are making a point. And let's review those questions. If someone's carrying holy meat in the fold of his garment, touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does it become holy? No, it doesn't. Holiness is not transferred by touch. If someone is unclean by contact with a dead body, touches any of these, does it become unclean? Yeah. Unholiness becomes transferred. So the point that God through Haggai is making is in verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said so is it with this people and with this nation before me declares the Lord and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So remember they had an altar on which they were giving offerings to God but they had this uncleanness about them from having not rebuilt the temple. So they were making sacrifices, they were making offerings, but they were considered unacceptable because of this uncleanness in the land. And again, God reminds them of his luffing discipline on them in verse 15 and following. Verse 15 of chapter 2. Now then, consider from this day onward before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? In other words, before you started building the temple, because they did start, as we'll see a bit later, how was that going for you? Answer, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measure, there were but 20. I struck you in all the products of your toil, and with blight, and with mildew, and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. God was disciplining them with drought, with mildew, and with hail. All of those, by the way, listed in the Mosaic Covenant as covenant curses, if they didn't obey. But they totally missed it. They didn't turn to God. They just kept going. They just kept minding their own business. Brothers and sisters, let that not be us. Let that not be us. Let us not ignore the suffering and the difficulty that we face in our lives. We need to consider our ways. Is our suffering perhaps God's chastening us for our placing our own houses above his? And let's furthermore not ignore this word from God through Haggai to us. God is telling us that we need to place his business above our own. Let's listen to God's chastening. And remember, again, this is compassionate, merciful, loving, chastening. God loves us as sons. And because he loves us, he disciplines us. And he's disciplining us even now as we hear his word to challenge us and move us. So, listen to God's chastening. Listen to God's chastening. Number two, reprioritize. Reprioritize. This point It's very short. You might miss it, okay? So it's still very important, though. Just because it's short does not mean that it's not important. Remember that a moment ago when we jumped to chapter 2, we jumped three months into the future. So let's let's jump three months back to this first prophecy in chapter 1. After God had expressed his displeasure about what the people were doing and after he commanded them to rebuild the temple, We read in chapter 1, verse 12, that Zerubbabel, who was the appointed governor of this this new Persian province called Judah, Joshua, who was the high priest, and all the remnant of the people, we read in chapter 1, verse 12, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Their response to God's message was immediate obedience, immediate reprioritization. At the end of verse 14, we read this, and they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They immediately stopped busying themselves with their own houses and they turned their attention to God's house that lay in ruins. What is your immediate response to this message? In what ways are you going to reprioritize your life starting right now? What in your life is getting in the way of your participation in the church's mission to know Jesus and make him known? In what areas of your life is God not first? Be encouraged with this. God is with you. God is with you. Jesus said at the end of the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And God says it to these people in chapter 1, verse 13. I am with you, declares Yahweh. I think we can misunderstand this concept of God being with us, Christ being with us. God isn't just with us, like, you know, for moral support and solidarity. God is with you. When God is with you, success is guaranteed. God was with them in rebuilding the temple, so success was guaranteed. Christ is with us in the Great Commission, so success is guaranteed. So be encouraged that God is with you. Also be encouraged by the fact that God is working in you. God is working in you. You are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And in this particular case, by reprioritizing your life correctly. But also, Philippians 2, 13, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He gives you the desire to obey him, he gives you the desire to prioritize your life correctly, and then he actually has you do it for his good pleasure we see him do it in verse 14 of chapter 1. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And it was then that they worked. God stirred them up, and they got to work. Yes, they worked because they decided to fear God and obey him. Yes, but it was also because God worked in them, stirring up their spirits. So, as you reprioritize your life, rely on him. Rely on him. He is with you, brother and sister in Christ. He is working in you, and success is guaranteed in this great commission. Not to say that if you share the gospel, everyone's going to believe, but we will make disciples of every nation. By God's grace, we will. So we're to listen to God's chastening. We're to reprioritize. And three, we're to hold on to God's promises. We'll spend the rest of our time here. Hold on to God's promises. A month into the reconstruction, it was clear. They're looking at this temple that's being built. And they can see that this new project did not hold a candle to the grandeur of Solomon's temple which if you were here when Pastorola was preaching through First Kings it was quite grand. God encourages them about this in chapter 2 verse 3 chapter 2 verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong O Joshua son of Jehosadak the high priest be strong all you people of the land declares the Lord work for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt my spirit remains in your midst fear not God's being with them was not based on a last minute split decision based on their obedience God was with them, and it was according to the covenant that he made with them at Mount Sinai, verse 5 says. According to the covenant. His promise that he made way back with Moses endured because God is not a liar, and God keeps all of his promises. His spirit remained in their midst, and therefore they did not need to be afraid. Fear not. So we see this this first promise of God that he would keep his covenant promises to them. He would remain with them. What about in the new covenant that we're in? Again, Jesus promised that he would be with us till when? Till the end of the age. And Hebrews 13, 8 bolsters that with this information, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus says in in John 10, verses 28 through 29, that, that no one can snatch us neither out of his hand nor the Father's hand. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you believe in Jesus, God is always going to be with you And he's always going to be for you. Hold on to these promises. Be strong and fear not. There are even more promises in this passage. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So we're going to see this language of of shaking creation a couple of times, and they mean something different in both of these situations. Here in this first one, when it's talking about God's shaking heavens and earth, it's about providing all of the necessary resources for them to be able to restore the temple to its former glory. So right now, you guys are just coming back from exile you have very little resources except I guess to panel your own houses but I will shake the earth and I will shake the heavens to give you all that you need to restore this temple we do see an immediate fulfillment of this in Ezra 6 8 which informs us that actually the Persians ended up paying for this whole reconstruction project but ultimately The reason that this was the case, that Persia ended up paying for it, was that God, not Persia, not the rest of the world, is the owner of all things. God is the owner of all things. He says that in verse 8. He says, The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. So God would provide for this work. And then in verse 9 we read, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This was an encouraging promise to those who were looking at this building project, and perhaps they were feeling discouraged by the meager look of the beginnings of this new temple, especially with the ones who who saw the temple before that first generation. And God would fulfill that in a temporal sense. Yet there is an even greater fulfillment of this. Jesus identifies himself as the temple. Jesus says in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And then in verses 20 through 22 of John 2, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the temple has always been pointing forward to Jesus Christ. It was in the temple that the Old Testament people went to go have fellowship and have communion with God, but now it is in christ that god's people have fellowship and communion with god in the temple sacrifices were made in order for you to remain in right standing with god with christ he himself was that final sacrifice who provides eternally right standing with god for all who believe in him and whereas the nations would would end up giving up their treasures to fill this house with glory, Christ would give himself up for the nations. Christ would give himself up for the nations. And he calls all nations to himself. And he will be glorified by all nations. Jesus is the greater temple. And while God provided peace in the former temple, Christ himself is the ultimate peacemaker. Ephesians 2.14 says, he himself is our peace. In addition to Christ's being the temple, his church also, us, which is his body, we're also identified as the temple. Remember what Pastor Corey preached in 1 Peter 2 verses 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see the picture that Peter is painting. We're being built into a new temple. God continues to build this temple, which is which is far greater than the one that Solomon built, and far greater than the one that was being rebuilt here in Haggai, and we will one day Behold a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation all glorifying God together, each and every one of us as living stones that have comprised this living spiritual house, this temple. That is a promise that we can cling to. For those in Haggai, God's promise that the temple was going to be glorious, that's encouraging. You're working hard, but this is not looking great. But God promises that it's going to be glorious, so it's encouraging to you. For us, God's promise that he will save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that is encouraging to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Cling to these promises and work, for he is with us. And he is with us according to the covenant that he has made with us. We see even more promises in Haggai more promises. Remember earlier we covered God's recounting of the people's disobedience in in chapter 2. But then in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2 we read this. Consider from this day onward from the 24th day of the ninth month since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. So they're thinking back to the previous years that they've they've just gone through. The harvest has been bad. It has not been plentiful. Why? Because God was disciplining them. And now it's December, the time that they're about to, to plant seeds for the next harvest. And with that in mind, we read at the end of verse 19, but from this day on, I will bless you. Because of their return to covenant obedience, God was going to cause their next harvest to flourish so what shall we say then if we obey God he's going to bless us with a plentiful harvest it sounds a bit like the prosperity gospel in a way yes he will in a way we read this in Matthew 6 31 through 33 Matthew 6 31 through 33 therefore do not be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So as long as we seek God's kingdom, he is going to provide for us. That doesn't mean that he's promising affluence, but he's definitely promising provision. We don't need to worry about starving to death as God's people. He will provide. And with that said, God does not promise us economic prosperity. In the Mosaic Covenant, He did. If God's people would be faithful to Him, He would bless their crops, He would make the people live in abundance. If they were not faithful to Him, He would discipline them with pestilence and drought and hail and he would eventually, if they remained in that state, kick them out of the land. The Mosaic Covenant was about remaining in the promised land as God's people, but all of that was pointing to a greater reality of an eternal promised land, a heavenly Jerusalem, a place and a state where we will dwell with Christ forever. And so since our land and our prosperity are promised in the future, there is no guarantee that we're gonna prosper here financially many Christians do prosper I mean relative to the world we're all prosperous here in America many Christians do and God blesses their faithfulness he blesses their wisdom and yet many faithful Christians also live in poverty Paul the Apostle did both at different times in his life and he was content in either of those circumstances so we're not promised economic prosperity, though he may grant that to us according to his purposes. But what we certainly do have is every spiritual blessing. We have every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. And then he goes on to list some of those blessings all the way through verse 14 of Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved Those are blessings that we are guaranteed. Some of which we have already and others that we will surely possess in the future. Hold on to these promises. We see yet one more promise at the end of Haggai. Chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Chapter 2, verses 21 through 23 has a message for Zerubbabel in particular. Remember, Zerubbabel is, is the governor of this now Persian province called Judah. And God's message to Zerubbabel on December of 520 B.C. was this. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So again, the shaking language. But this time, the shaking of the heavens and the earth is talking about judgment. He's about to judge the heavens and the earth and overthrow kingdoms. Well, when was his promise fulfilled? Judah would continue to be under Persian rule. Eventually, in 334 B.C., 200 years later, Persia would fall to Greece, to Alexander the Great. And then eventually, Greece would fall to Rome. You can understand, then, in light of this, that why people in Jesus' time were very much awaiting a Messiah that would come and overthrow Rome. No. This prophecy would have a much later and a much greater fulfillment. And of course, that's in Christ. Already, Christ rules over all the nations. And yet one day, Philippians 2, 10 through 11, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Interestingly, Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel, who, when the people went into exile, he was considered the king in exile. He was under the Babylonian rule, but he was considered the king in exile. That's Zerubbabel's dad, his father. And Shealtiel, like his father before him, and his father before him, and so on, was from the line of David, the line from which the Messiah would come. And just as God chose David, we see here in this last verse that God chose Zerubbabel, and God made Zerubbabel, verse 23 tells us, like a signet ring. Signet rings are are rings that are used like a a royal seal that provided evidence that whatever is being sealed and stamped was royal authority and ownership. His great-grandfather, Zerubbabel's great-grandfather, Jehoiakim, is described in Jeremiah as a signet ring that God tore off. But now, God puts Zerubbabel on. Even though Zerubbabel Zerubbabel was not a king, he was merely a governor of this now Persian province called Judah, the Davidic line was still in place. The promise that the Messiah would come from the line of David was secure. And all who trust in Zerubbabel's descendant Jesus the Christ, will have eternal life. Hold on to that promise. In Haggai tonight, we've been encouraged to listen to God's chastening, to reprioritize, and to hold on to God's promises. What will you do with Haggai now? God's promises are sure. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you are saved you will continue to be saved, and you will one day finally be saved, guaranteed. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And at the same time that these promises abide, so do God's commandments, and so does our commission. Even though God is never going to cast us away, all we who believe in him, he will often lovingly chasten us, if we are derelict in our duty, and perhaps he's already doing so for you, what will you do? Will you stay focused on your own business, on your own house, or will you reprioritize to his? Take some time this week to, to write out all the spheres of life that you have: friends, family, romance, career, education, leisure entertainment, citizenship, politics, everything that you can think of, take a look at that list and ask yourself, is God your priority in all of those areas? All of them? and if not, what adjustments are you going to make today by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you? but don't just be motivated by God's discipline also hold on to God's promises brothers and sisters God is doing a mighty work in this world and we are simply his instruments he is going to accomplish all of his purposes and he will graciously use us in those purposes he will never leave us or forsake us and he will bring us through in victory to the very end so see to it that God is first in everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your kind and compassionate chastening on us. Forgive us, Father, for those areas in our lives that you have, we have not acknowledged that you are first in, that we have taken a lot of interest instead to pursue our own advancement rather than the advancement of your kingdom And help us, Lord, to turn every aspect of our lives over to your supremacy, that even in the most leisurely and mundane things that we would do all things to the glory of God, whether we eat or drink, O Lord, that we would do all things to your glory. Thank you for saving sinners like us, O God. And help us as saved people to do what you have called us to do, to make the best use of our time knowing that the days are evil. Help us, teach us to number our days. Help us to be all about our Father's business, just like your Son was about your business. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you and keep you. You're dismissed.